Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Amy Liz Harrison is not your typical alcoholic, but I guess really what is your typical alcoholic? I guess she's one of the people you just, I don't know, wouldn't expect. Uh, She's a mom of four. Uh, At the time she got sober, she was a mom of four. She is honest about the fact that she had unlimited resources, but all of a sudden a woman with unlimited resources had CPS visiting her home. A woman with unlimited resources and the perfect life on paper began blacking out at her husband's events. She fell down the stairs with her two-year-old daughter, sending her daughter to the ER, and eventually she got a DUI with her kids in the car and her life started to change. Uh, She wrote a book. We talk about that. And she is a really inspiring woman and she's very, very honest. And that breeds more honesty. And for me, it kind of makes recovery feel like a safe place. So without further ado, Amy Liz Harrison. But first, Kevin Souza. Stand by the ocean floor. Hi, this is Amy. Amy, hey, it's Pete Souza. How you doing? Hi, Pete. Good. How are you? Good. It's great to hear your voice. Great to talk to you. Thanks. You too. Uh, so here's how here's how it goes. I, I am I'm in a podcast studio right now, and Mike is our producer, so he's going to be hanging out, listening to us, getting making sure our levels and everything are all are all good. Um, right. And uh, yeah, I, man, I'm happy to talk to another alcoholic. I had like a for the first time, I've been sober for nine and a half years. You're sober 10 years, right? Yep. Yeah, for the first time in like six years, I do a morning show here in Texas, and I overslept for the first time ever, and I just feel like my, I'm kind of out of control, you know? <laughs> yes, I totally get that, and yeah, it's happened to me too, and you just feel totally discombobulated. Totally discombobulated. People, people are worried, and uh, I have no children and a dog, you have eight kids. And I would imagine that when that, you actually have a reason for that to go down. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you'd think I'd be kind of like having a good routine down and I'd be sort of dialed in, but I still just have these moments where I'm like, I can't believe I'm responsible for all these lives. Like, I hope it goes well. <laughs> well, it sounds like it is going well. The book is called, and we're starting right now, if that's okay with you. Okay. Yeah, the yep, book, the book, yeah. The book is called "Eternally Expecting: A Mom of Eight Gets Sober and Gives Birth to a New Life, Her Own." And when did you write the book? Well, I wrote the book last summer, so summer of 2020, when we were all kind of in quarantine and I wasn't driving kids around, so I sort of had time. Okay, I'm, I want to go backwards with you, uh, yeah, and, and yeah. I don't. We're not going to give away the whole book, but when. Your story is so interesting just from what I've read about your life, but a couple things just as a, as a fellow alcoholic I get curious about is when, when did you have your first drink? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my first drink was pretty um, uneventful, so much so that I don't remember it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I had some sips of beer and stuff growing up um, as, a, as a kid, and then in college I had... Um, the proverbial Bartles and James uh, wine cooler every now and again. But the first drink that I remember where I really felt that sense of ease and comfort was at a Thanksgiving dinner. And it was actually the Thanksgiving right after I turned 21. And I guess my mom was like, okay, you're an adult now and you can have champagne at dinner. And I just remember that feeling of, oh man, I have the best family ever. We're so connected and, you know, just that sort of false um, uh, connective tissue with other people that I didn't normally feel with my extended family. So um, I knew something was different. That's the time when I, I took a drink and I knew something had changed. I really liked the way it made me feel. 
Did you feel different growing up? Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. I totally suffered from that, you know, comparing my insides to everybody else's outsides and just having that sense of, gosh, everybody else got the manual to life except for me. You know, I'm, I'm left here trying to figure it out on my own and um, just felt like I was extra sensitive. Things, you know, that would roll off of other people's backs really bothered me. Things hurt my feelings more than it, they seemed to um, from my perspective. And, and I just didn't get that, you know, that was my perspective and my perception and it wasn't necessarily true. So when you grew up, first of all, where'd you grow up? Sure. So I was born in LA and I was raised in the Silicon Valley in uh, Mountain View. So Facebook, Google, that town. And let me tell you, it was not cool back then. (laughs) (laughs) Did you, did you go to a public school or private school? Yeah, I went to public school. Okay. And where'd you go to college? Um, I went to college at Azusa Pacific University. Probably never heard of it. It's like East LA, basically East of Pasadena. So you go to school back in LA. You you have your first drink when you're 21. How does it go from there? How does the evolution go? What's, what's, what's the, is that a springboard? Do you go back to school and you're off to the races? No, um, I really started out, Pete, as a normal drinker. And, and I mean, like, I mean, that with all sincerity, I had no, even though I enjoyed that Thanksgiving glass of champagne, I had no attachment to it. And I really, I didn't even think about it until the next time I drank, which I think was like a year later at my wedding, I had a glass of champagne, but it was not anything that I mentally craved or bodily craved. And so my husband and I got married, moved up to Seattle in 2001 when I was pregnant with my first baby. And uh, to meet people, I tried, um, you know, hanging out with neighbors, going to book clubs and that sort of thing where I'd have a social glass of wine or two and really didn't even think about it until the next month would roll along. And so I I had this belief as I watched my disease progress after I had my, um, my fourth baby. I mean, I was off to the races then for sure and really just had that sense of um, emptiness in my soul and felt like I just wanted to escape it and realize that alcohol was helping me to do that. And so then at that point, when I started feeling like, oh my goodness, I'm not sure anymore that I'm controlling this. I think the alcohol is controlling me. And I didn't tell anybody because I was terrified that someone was going to ask me to give it up. And it thought it was my treat and thought it was something that um, was making my life better, although I was secretly terrified that it wasn't making my life better and that I couldn't really stop when I wanted to but of course that was my tagline for everybody so in my head I lived every day picking up a drink thinking well I can stop when I want to but I'm just not ready yeah and it stood to reason in my mind that I could get back to being a normal drinker because I started out that way and I had no understanding of the disease and so um you know it was this endless pursuit of trying to control it, then, of course, feeling guilt and shame when I realized that I couldn't, and then getting sort of back on that treadmill the next day and trying again. And it's such an exhausting cycle. You you had an incredible life on paper, and you talk about the fact that, you know, that just wasn't what was going on inside of you. When when you have four kids and you're up on this, like, pedestal – it's got to feel, did, did you feel like you were a fraud with, 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 with the drinking and, 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 you know, with, with what you were portraying? Oh, a hundred percent. And even to amplify that a little bit, I not only felt like a fraud, but I felt like, what is wrong with me? Why am I feeling so horrific inside? This makes no sense why I would feel the need to escape this life that I have. And so I would sort of mentally beat myself up about that. 
and that would make it worse, right? So then I would drink over that. So, you know, just just like it talks about in the big book, I mean, it was like that cycle just would start again. And um, I'd find myself, you know, just caught on this merry-go-round that I couldn't get off. And, um, yeah, every time I'd look at my kids in the morning and overcompensate for what I knew I was doing to them and look at my face in the mirror, you know, puffy, bloated face, I just would get that feeling of, like, oh, my God, like, I hate you, you know? And, and, and just that feeling alone knowing that I was hurting people and hurting myself was just enough to just, I just wanted to escape it immediately. I had to have the TV on at all times. You know, I had to have people over all the time so I could just kind of stake my way around my life and just make it look like, you know, I had my stuff together when I really didn't. And I think everybody kind of saw that, uh, you know, at least towards the end, they definitely did. You know, but I was all about impression management. And as long as I thought that you thought that I was okay, then I felt okay. I like so. that. So you say oh, you were all about impressing management, like the other people yeah. were your managers almost because that's all that mattered. Right. I've never heard that. Yeah, that's it. That's super interesting. I like that. And I, at times, I, I did the same thing when I was drinking until I couldn't anymore, like you said, and at times I still want to do it when I'm not like totally spiritually connected. So you, 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 you get married and then you mentioned you just drank a bottle of champagne maybe at your wedding. When did, what were some of the consequences along or, 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 or doors you walked through that people would be shocked to know that a wife with four kids, uh, and with, with a nice situation, uh, is doing the drinking is making her. Oh, yeah. Sure. Well, and um, at my wedding, just to be clear, it was a glass of champagne. It wasn't a bottle. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Which is totally fine, but I just want to clarify. And then the doors that I, I started to walk through and kind of the progression of the disease for me was, I mean, here I was, this good, you know, girl, supposedly raised in the church, shouldn't need, according to what I believe, shouldn't need any other um, outside help at all, whether it was therapy, whether it was, you know, medication for postpartum depression or whatever, that was my perception of how I was supposed to cope with life. And so as I sort of had missed my 20s in the proverbial sense of I was married, I was having babies. Um, when did you get married? I ended, sorry? When did you get married? How old were you? I just turned 22. Okay. All right. So you got married earlier. Okay, go ahead. Sorry to cut you off. I was just curious. No, no, you're fine. Um, so I, you know, started getting some uh, other mom friends. We were doing things like going to Vegas and, you know, hanging out super late. I had this one friend who, I mean, we were shutting down dive bars all around town. I mean, just stuff that you know what, it's kind of cute at one point in time when you're young and whatever, but, you know, married mothers of children, and there gets to be a point where, you know, the liquid courage makes me, you know, or made me feel like I was looking pretty good and I was pretty cool, uh, but from the outside perspective, it definitely was not that way, and um, just hitting those markers of like, oh my gosh, now I take a drink in the morning. Oh my gosh. Now I'm starting to drive with regularity after I've been drinking. Oh my gosh. Now I can't even go to a parent teacher conference without a coffee cup that has Chardonnay in it, you know? And so just these like things that these almost, um, almost, uh, mile markers of like, well, cross that bridge, cross that one. And, you know, the last drink I had, well, the last drink before my, my DUI, my last day of drinking, I should specify, <laughs> you know, I'm sitting in the parking lot, okay, of this Chevron station. And, you know, at the time where we lived in Seattle, you know, you couldn't buy beer or wine before 6 o'clock. What, what, what kind of car are you sitting in? 
suburban. Okay. And, and you can't mom-mobile. buy, yeah, mom mobile, and you can't buy alcohol before six o'clock in Seattle. Yeah. That, that was the deal back then. Now you can buy it anywhere, anytime basically. But, um, I, uh, I'm sitting in, I'm just like super hungover and I just two weeks earlier was at rehab and, um, here I, you know, it's like, I could not believe I was just right back in the same spot that I was before I left. And I'm sitting in this parking lot and I had told my husband, I totally lied that I was going to a meeting, an early morning meeting. And here I am sitting in this parking lot. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's five minutes to six. I'm feeling super nauseous and sick. And it was this kind of, um, it was kind of a watershed moment of like, you know what, look at your life. Like this is what, this is the sum total of your life right now. And it just seems so pathetic to me at that moment. And so I just find it interesting <laughs> that, you know, that later that day I'm doing the field sobriety test on the main drag through town and all my um, mom friends are driving by three o'clock in the afternoon. And, um, you know, and that, that night, in um, King County Jail, you know, the best way I can describe it is like looking like a looking a tiger in the eye or something where you just really come face to face with the reality of the situation, whatever it is. And that night for me was, um, it was so powerful. It was, it was a turning point that, um, that just really affected me deeply and just really was this um, just heart shattering um, night where I just was kind of uh, realizing I was on the precipice of something else and I wasn't sure what that was. Well, it's that jumping off point, right? You can't live with it and and it's like you can't live without it. What are you going to do? You have to stop. Yeah. Yeah. How did you end up going to rehab the first time? So um, I had gone to a psychiatrist and um, basically my life was unmanageable by this point. I was drinking around the clock, but I went to the psychiatrist, of course, did not tell him how much I was drinking. And I told him I was having panic attacks, which was true. I was having these kind of alcoholic, you know, alcohol induced panic attacks. And uh, so he gave me Xanax and that was pretty much my demise. I was just in bed by that point, you know, didn't know if it was 6 a.m., 6 p.m. My mom had to move in, help take care of the kids. I kept saying I was depressed, and and I'm not saying I wasn't to a certain degree, but I definitely was throwing gasoline on that fire with alcohol, and finally my husband came to me and just said, you know what, I can't see this, I can't see this anymore. I can't watch you every day go through this and we're going to go ahead and get you hooked up with uh, a counselor and you'll be able to get out of here and you'll go to orange County and you'll be able to kind of work on your depression issues. And I, he promised me that it was not rehab. And it was, huh? And, so, <laughs> and it was, <laughs> and I was, pissed. <laughs> I was so pissed. I mean, yeah, we, I got there and I just was like, I can't believe he did this to me, you know, and totally lied and I was so mad and, and I just didn't see myself as one of them, you know, I'm sure. in these groups and I'm like, Oh my God, I, I didn't realize that I had a pride and ego problem that was so thick that I couldn't even see that I had a problem. I mean, I thought literally, I mean, all those, people in there it was like oh man you guys have legal problems you know you guys have been kicked out of the house you guys you know your husband's left you whatever I still have all that stuff so at that point I had this real um, spirit of arrogance and um, that got quickly knocked down and then you get <laughs> the gift that you get was. yeah you get the gift of desperation I want to just go back to the therapist thing I had a similar experience where I was mired in this addiction. Uh, my life was totally unmanageable and I got sent to a therapist and 
it was like, geez, I can't understand why. Like, cause of course I'm not being honest about my drinking. He's like, I just can't understand why you can't get it together. Here's this guy. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't know totally. either. Yeah. And, and it's amazing. And you just, cause, cause for me, and those poor therapists, because we're not honest with them. So they're not able to do their jobs and they're not detectives. Right. And I would say, Hey, I'm not drinking. And I would fight tooth and nail to admit that I was because I would let nothing get in the way of me and my alcohol. And right. so you just, you're wasting so many people's time and so, so much time of everyone's. And that's the, and that's part yeah. of the masquerade is, yep. and, and, and it's exhausting. And it sounds like you did the same thing and, and the same thing happened to me too. For whatever reason, you've got to go, I had to go all the way down and yep. I had to, I had to have that gift of desperation. So talk to me about before we, and I want to get into your recovery after this, but that last day you mentioned it starts mm -hmm. in a parking lot before six in your suburban and, and gosh, that is quite the, uh, the ribbon to put on it. If that's for lack of a better term, um, <laughs> that later on that day, you're, you're getting arrested for, for a DUI. Walk me through that last day. We started with the morning. What happens? How do you end up getting that DUI? Yeah. Um, so I had got my very classy couple of bottles of cooked extra dry champagne. Okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I, and I dumped those into my coffee cup and I had to go to the school that morning and watch some performance. And so, you know, I mean, the whole exhausting, you know, concept of, trying to hide the fact that I was drinking at school in the morning and somebody of course had told me somewhere along the way, or I had maybe learned it from the internet. I can't even remember now, but if you eat peanut butter, nobody can smell yeah. that you've been drinking. Yeah. You know, all these little things that people sure. say, right? And so, um, you know, I'm like, I've got this jar of like skippy in my console of my vehicle. I mean, with, ridiculous like this whole craziness right house of cards um that i was doing and so get to the school do that play that whole charade put on that face and then um i just kept drinking and at one point i guess i had called a friend and um she was gonna come pick me up she didn't pick me up and or i you called a friend because you were happened. because you were drunk or yeah, yeah, she could tell I was drinking. Okay, so she was like, and I'm going to come like get you. Very, yeah, okay. she was going to come get me. This is my very good friend. And, um, of course, I was feeling sorry for myself about something. And, you know, just that pathetic, like, oh, my life. And um, driving around and got a bottle of wine. I'm driving around with that. And then it was time to get the kids. So I did that. And on the way home, I tapped the car. So I hit them from behind and the person sort of got out and just kind of looked at the bumper, shook their head, didn't care and left. And your kids are <laughs> in the car. Thought, What's that? And your kids are in the car at this point or you're going yeah. to get them. They're yeah. in the car. Okay. They're in the car. And, uh, you know, they, they were definitely freaked out. I mean, I, I was doing all kinds of stuff on the way home. Like I was hitting mailboxes because I couldn't stay in the lane I mean, it was, you know, thinking back and talking about it now, I, I know I sound casual and flippant almost, and I don't mean to sound that way. It's just that it's been so long that I'm not as attached to the emotion of the story, but... Um, That's a great way know, to articulate it. Yeah, thanks. It's just, you know, it's, it's horrific behavior, and and there is zero excuse for it, but that's what the disease does. It doesn't respond to reason, and so... I get pulled over and I'll, of course, in my head, I'm thinking, I just need to get home. I'm almost there, you know, just need to get home. And so uh, somebody had called, called it in. Somebody had seen me and, and knew something wasn't right. And so um, I, the next thing I kind of remember is doing the field sobriety test and failing. And my neighbor came down and got my kids and, and it was like sort of this, you know, fever dream. I just kind of don't remember all of the um, all of the happenings. But I was taken to the local PD, where, of course, again from somewhere in the the cloud, I pulled down from my mind, um, 
somebody had told me once, don't ever take the breathalyzer test. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, me too, uh, totally. Yeah, like some bar uh, friend. The peanut know, butter and really the, yeah, totally. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm right yeah. with you. Oh my gosh. And so um, I didn't blow. Well, okay, so boom, that's automatically, you know, I get the, the blow and go situation um, for a year after that. Um, which was great. Ended up being what I needed, but of yeah. course I was just devastated. And um, boom, so, so was that that was your last drink, the drink you had before you get this DUI? I wish it were. Okay. Okay. <laughs> nope. Keep going. Okay. Okay. Yep. Um, so they take me to get my blood drawn um, over here at the big trauma hospital, Harborview, the county, you know, and then um, they took me to jail for the night, and that's when I was like, you know what, I'm terrified that I will not be able to stay sober, but I guess I better try because if I don't try, I definitely have lost my family and my kids. When, what was your blood alcohol my, level? I have no idea okay. to say. Yeah. I, I, it's actually something I've wanted to look into, so maybe I will at some point. This for me, by um, the way, was, the part you're talking about became the scariest part when I wanted to stop and I couldn't. And it sounds like that's what happened for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and actually, I wouldn't even say that I wanted to stop. I wanted to manage it again. I was just in that endless pursuit, you know, and they say people pursue it, you know, to the gates of insanity and death. And, and that was me. I mean, I just would not entertain the concept of giving it up completely. And, you know, it's just sad. When I look back on that, I'm like, wow. But, um, you know. You had a, ba- you had a back of- problem. Like I said, people were on my back. Uh, right. And, and so that's when, you know, you start to at least, whether it's try to manage it or put on the show or maybe you make a, a, a half-baked conscious effort to get sober, but it's still not where I needed to be to turn it all over. Right. Absolutely. Yes, I completely, I completely relate. Yep. So what happens uh, next? Yeah, I spent the night in jail. My husband uh, bailed me out, picked me up the next day, and you can imagine um, what a car ride. How strained is your relationship with him at this point? I mean, how much did he know during this whole thing, and what was his attitude towards it? Because I've been meaning to ask that question. Uh, You know, I put him through so much. He was actually so patient now that I look back on it. I mean, there were a lot of times I would have kicked myself to the curb. I mean, it just, he had a real sense of like long suffering. But by this point, I mean, he hadn't really figured out, oh, so she's hiding bottles everywhere. Oh, so she's got a trunk full of stuff. Oh, he didn't really know all of that until I was back at rehab for the second time and they did it like a big giant clean out. So there was a lot of trust, of course, that had to be rebuilt. Um, he wanted me to, you know, basically find the strength to fight to save our marriage and our family. Um, so it was kind of up to me. <laughs> and that was a scary prospect for me, but it was also so important for me to know that you know, he wasn't going to be sticking around for the rest of this show, yeah. you know, and, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, I could choose at that point, whether I was going to try or, you know, just say screw it and just, uh, keep drinking. So I knew I had to try because I did want, I did want my life and I wanted my kids and I was super broken and all of that, but I was also terrified of failing and, so my last drink was on the plane going back to rehab, the same place that, um, that I had just been. How much time and, in between the DUI and, and this date? Like 24 hours. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. And I went straight back. And that was basically because my case manager, you know, we had called her after I got out of jail and she said, um, yeah, it's going to look better to a judge if you get right back into treatment. So off I went. What And, what, and what was the I, date? Okay, so that was April 22nd. 
of 2011 because I can't, I, I say that my sobriety birth date is the 23rd because sure. my last drink was on the 22nd. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. Um, so my husband had taken all my credit cards and everything and, um, sitting there on the plane and, and somehow I'd bummed some, a couple Chardonnays off of the guy next to me. He bought me some, a uh, couple drinks. I think he felt sorry for me. Yeah, I'm going to rehab. This is it. Oh, and I looked like crap. You know, you could tell I was super sad and just, you know, the whole thing. And um, so that was it. And and you know what was what was really telling was here I am. I stuck those two Chardonnays down. I felt nothing. I mean, I can I couldn't even get a hint of a buzz. You know, my tolerance was way high, and so I it did nothing for me. And I just thought, yep. <laughs> this is the end of the line, really. I mean, this is it. So, so you um, show up for treatment, and then what happens? Yeah, I walk in the door, and they basically said, "Are you done yet?" Same and place. So, uh, same place. Okay. Yeah, and um, I said, "Yeah, I'm I'm done, and I I hope I can make it." And that was the big deal. Was that I just you know, I didn't know if I could do it. And they said, well, you just need to be willing to follow directions. And so that commenced the journey of my sobriety. And, um, you know, I'll tell you, that was, that was hard to do. I didn't realize how much control, the illusion of control, I thought I had over my life. And so giving all of that up was just foreign to me and it all just took practice you know um really self-evaluating and learning how to do that and and learning to say I'm an alcoholic I mean that was a massive deal for me at the beginning and um you know now I say it all the time second nature but um what, what yeah. was your what was your family your you know your your parents your brothers I guess one thing I want to ask is is there alcoholism in your family um, they would say no. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> That's all you have to say. They would yeah, say no, but yeah, I get it. I know you get it. Uh, yeah. And for people, you know, yeah, I, I get it. And so what did, what were they like, Hey, you're okay. What's going on? Were they, uh, enabling maybe? Um, I wouldn't say they were enabling. Uh, they were definitely concerned and I would say I was receiving, um, a couple some mixed messages maybe because uh, I was kind of feeling like they were being hard on me and I was like, well, look at you guys and your issues. So I was kind of playing that game, just deflecting uh-huh. and um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, I, I just kind of felt like I was the family disappointment at that. So I really just put myself into that victim role and, then I vacillated between, you know, the victim, the martyr, the victim, the martyr, you know, and, yeah. and, and it was just all smoke and mirrors. It was, it was just all to, um, you know, get them off of my case um, and just deter them from thinking that anything really bad was going on. And, and, it, you know, it's just, it, it was unfortunate that, you know, that's how I played it, but it's just so common, you know, to, to have the addict or the alcoholic, you know, do that, just kind of try and blame everything else except themselves. <laughs> and yeah. be, you know, and so, when you start to take accountability, that's when things start to change for you. And when did, when did that happen to you? Like how far were you in treatment for the second time when the lights, before the lights started to flicker a little bit? You know, I, I would say once I really, um, I came out of a little bit of the brain fog that took about 10 days. And then after that, um, you know, I really truly had, uh, conceded to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic that night in jail. And so after my brain kind of cleared up, I was, I was more ready. And I just really was like, all right, if I got to do this, I got to do this. So I need to know how, because my ways haven't worked. So, you know, I was willing to listen at that point. And, you know, that's what it took for me. It's just that place of surrender to win 
Um, and I just had to continually keep practicing that whole idea of, okay, my best thinking got me here. So I don't know what's best for me. And I'm just going to have to just put myself in their care. And I did. Yeah. And that's, and, that's uh, a magical moment. It's, uh, yeah. It really is. What would you say? It's got to be so hard. This is, you know, we can relate to so much, right? Being alcoholics, but I can't relate to what it's like being, like you said, on paper with this successful family life, being, you know, a mom of four. How hard is it? I guess the the question is, what would you tell other women who might be listening to this now who are in similar predicaments? I mean, that's got to be one of the most impossible things to break through. I'm an alcoholic. I have a problem when your whole life has been putting together this because you have the, the children, too, that you're kind of doing it for. They're putting together this idea of a perfect life. Uh, what do you tell women that come behind you? So my biggest message is that I don't know, obviously, I mean, I can't turn back time, but I feel like if somebody had said to me, the life waiting for you on the other side of this will be beyond what you could ever imagine. And you just have to trust that. But I just never heard that from anybody. I, I never understood that. I didn't know anybody in 12 step fellowships. I didn't, you know, I just thought all of that was for losers who were under the bridge with a brown bag. And if somebody had just said to me, no, you're actually just prolonging your misery and you will not believe how this thing unfolds if you just give it a chance. I I think that would have made a big difference. I think I might have tried a little bit sooner. When did you um, hear but, that you message? Know, oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. You said you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was just um, going to say that um, it takes what it takes. And I totally believe that my story had to unfold the way it did. I had to get um, the DUI, I really needed uh, legal problems to uh, prove to myself that I was an alcoholic, to get to that point where I could admit that I had lost the power of choice in drink. And I had to listen to those victims panels and, and, and all the things that you have to do when you um, get a DUI. I mean, those things were so important in solidifying to my own innermost self that I was an alcoholic and that this was, you know, a life that had to be completely, completely reworked from the ground up. You start to and, rework uh, it in 12-step meetings. And, you know, as, as you write and as I saw, what starts to happen in those meetings? Like, like when do you start to hear that message that you just talked about and, or, or maybe see it in other people? Like, wow. Because you you live, you're living in Seattle, right? Yeah. So you start to plug into meetings there, I'm guessing? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, we're over here on the east side, and so I'm guessing there's some good meetings and and people that you probably didn't expect to see in those meetings, right? Because we all, like you yeah. said, have our idea. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's really um, when I started to see a real ray of hope. Like, oh, so these folks look like I mean, they've gotten their lives together, you know. They, they're not driving these drunk mobiles in the, in the parking lot, you know, that have like half the bumper missing. And, you know, it, it just seemed like, I don't know how they got here and why they're still going to meetings after, you know, 18, 19 years of doing this, but they seem like very happy. And I did not have that. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it was a curiosity for sure. And, um, you know, I, the only way I can describe it is like, I felt like I just, you know, jumped into a river and just clung on to like, you know, here's a bunch of 12 step folks in inner tubes, right? Roll, just floating down the river. And I just kind of grabbed onto them because, um, I didn't know how else to do it. And, uh, and it, it worked out well because, you know, after some time, I really enjoyed, I mean, I loved sitting in the meetings and, and hearing what they said and how much their lives had changed. And then, you know, as a result, 
it was weird because at first I was still way craving alcohol. Oh my goodness. I would leave meetings and I would just be salivating because, you know, somebody would have mentioned booze at some level, like, Oh, I used to love this, that, and the other drink. And I'd be like, Oh my God, I did too. (laughs) You know, so I had that. How did you get over those cravings? Um, you know, I called my sponsor one night, my temporary sponsor from um, rehab, and I said, you know, I don't think I can do this because I am literally like, I can't even go to these meetings without thinking about drinking. I'm thinking about drinking all day. And she said, have you prayed for the obsession to be removed? And I said, nope. And so she suggested that I start doing that. And that was the beginning of, it was like somebody just let the air out of the balloon and um, it started to dissipate. So I could then go to meetings and I could, you know, listen for the solution and the similarities and not focus on the differences. And it started to come together, you know, and then I sort of realized after like six months or so, I was like, dang, you know what? I, I kind of want this thing. Yeah, and did <laughs> like you? I did you isn't it awesome? That's the best feeling in the world. But but oh. I, what I want to touch on is you know you mentioned you write in your book blackouts at your husband's work events. Uh, you know you have to take your daughter to the ER after you fall down the stairs. Your two year old daughter ransacking oh. mini bars. You know all the stuff that alcoholics do. When did yeah. you start to tell people? in AA about that stuff that you speak freely about now. And you mentioned, you don't mean to be laissez-faire, but you're not as connected to that, the emotions anymore. Uh, it's still right. so serious, but when did you start to, to, to open up to people about that stuff? And how did it feel when you put that stuff out there? So I pretty much opened up right away. Um, simply because I was like, you know what? I, I got nothing left. And if I, can't talk about this year, then I'm really screwed. And so, you know, I just kind of, I laid it out there and, and I knew it probably wasn't, you know, very solution based, (laughs) some of the things that I was saying, but I didn't know what that was yet. You know, I, I was brand new and I was, you know, still really raw. And some of those escapades, I felt like, you know, I could only talk about those escapades in the 12 step fellowship rooms because nobody else really understood, you know, I still was hanging out with some church folks and they were not exactly thrilled with me as you can imagine. And, um, you know, nobody else really got me. And that's the thing that I really felt in 12 step meetings. I felt seen and that was super important, you know, and, and I can relate to everybody else. And that was what I needed. I mean, they say that addiction is um, the opposite of love and connection. And and that's what I was looking for was connection. And that was what I was looking for in the bottle. And it could just never provide that for me. You know, I mean, drinking with buddies, it it just would only last, you know, a night that I felt so fantastic and so connected, right? And then it would dissipate, it would be gone. It would just vanish by the next day. So um, when I realized that I was actually building a firmer foundation through going to meetings and through going to, uh, through doing the steps and, you know, I got a great sponsor early on and, oh man, that made a huge difference. You know, just being real selective about, um, you know, who I chose and why, (laughs) You know, and not to choose the person who had the cutest shoes or the, yeah. you know, whatever. And so, um, yeah, I just, and, you know, and then kind of piggybacking off of that, you know, people talk about, oh, the fourth step, that's, you know, oh, I'm so scared of doing the fourth step. By the time I got to the fourth step, I was like, let's do it, bring it. I was just so ready to I just wanted to get better by that point. And you know, you're also, I, you mentioned you're flexing that muscle, right? You're being honest to people. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah. you know how to get there, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I really, I, I mean, I loved the four steps, especially the fourth column where I was like, oh, okay. So now I see my part. I see, you know, how I had a role in all these things where I thought, 
you know, I was the victim. And that was massively helpful to me. And I just learned so much about myself and, you know, my different fears and my, my roots of, you know, insecurities and, and all of that stuff. And it just felt like so many floating pieces had really come together to create a solid ground. And it was helpful. Like it was massively helpful. As we mentioned and off the top, you have, you have eight kids now. Right. Yeah. So, so you, so there's, we got like 15 minutes left. There's a couple more things I want to get to. Uh, sure. How was your relationship with your husband when you get back from treatment? You know, you're going to meetings and we talk about, you know, the family after in the rooms of AA yeah. and 12 step meetings. How did that work for you? Well, I'm going to sound like a big book dumper and I'm not one, but this, my favorite part recently of the book has been on page 124 in that very chapter, the family afterward. And it talks about, you know, that our past can become our greatest asset when shared. And so, um, you know, my husband, of course, it, it took us uh, a while for us to, you know, rebuild that trust. I mean, you know, he had to believe that I was really going to meetings and it helped that I had to get a court split signed. Because I did have proof that, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, people write them in themselves all the time and whatnot. But, um, you know, he could see a change in me over time. He was kind of like, she's really actually kind of doing this. He could see that I was trying. He could see that I wanted it. And he saw that struggle. And so, I mean, I, I, I don't really know how I got, you know, sort of lucky enough that I that I you know, got somebody who was willing to stick it out with me and willing to give me a chance. But here's the key is that I had to do it for myself. Like I ultimately had to decide, even though I didn't feel like I was worth getting sober for, I knew that that was going to be the key is that I had to do it for me ultimately. And you know what? If my family and my kids stayed, great like that would that was kind of the pipe dream right but if I did it for them it wouldn't last I knew that and so I I just kind of decided that I was going to do it for me and I, I chose to believe that somewhere down the road it was going to be a better life and I, I kind of just walked that way and it unfolded and so yeah, I mean, he and I, the best thing I'll say that he did for me, and this may not be true for, you know, everybody, but uh, my legal battles, he basically made me deal with those on my own 100%. And that was really important for me. I was used to him swooping in and rescuing me. Yeah. My parents swooping in and rescuing me. Everybody cleaning up the messes that I had made. And he just kind of lovingly refused to do that. And he detached himself from my legal issues. And that was, that was so, that was so um, brilliant on his part. And I don't know if he got that from Al-Anon or. Well, and it's the beauty of AA because for us, if we don't know how to do that stuff, there's somebody we can go ask and they'll tell us how to do it or they'll help us do it. And that's, that's how you get better because you, again, flex that muscle and you practice asking people for help. I want to go on and find out what were some were the major moments in your recovery where you really felt like, man, not only can I do this, but this is making me feel incredible. Uh, and you mentioned the four step, but stuff out there in the real world. I love how you mentioned, by the way, that you're the only PTA president in the history of your kid's school that's had a mugshot. <laughs> Uh, I mean, and that's, I think that's great. I, I, I love hearing that, but what are some of the moments that made you feel good? Like, man, this fills me the way that alcohol used to. Yeah. I mean, kind of the biggest deal would be that people started to be able to rely on me. I was completely unreliable before, you know, I'd say that I would show up somewhere and then I'd cancel because I was either too drunk, not drunk enough, whatever, forgot. And, you know, when people started to be able to know that I was going to show up again, that was, that was huge for me. And, and even now to this day, 
I can get a little bit anal about, oh, wait, like, did, you know, did you call that person back? Because they're going to think I flaked on them. If da, da, da. Like, I'll get these narratives going in my head, and then I have to go, okay, those are your old tapes. <laughs> like, stop playing those and just kind of back out of that mental parking space. But that was huge. Another thing that was huge was, um, you know, me being able to share with other people why I didn't drink. And at first I was real secretive about that. You know, I just, I was not in a place where I wanted to tell anybody who didn't already know. And um, when, you know, I got to that place where I felt confident enough in my recovery and in my forward movement to share it with people. That was powerful. And, you know, I had a sponsor who constantly would remind me that doing esteemable acts would build my self-esteem. 100%. And she was right. Yeah. Um, and so she was right about that for sure. And just so making deposits, right, into that bank of like who I want to be as a woman and as a, you know, sober mom and wife. And, and eventually it was like that whole act of this kind of thing. Eventually I kind of realized I was becoming that woman who I wanted to be. I was becoming that woman who I always lied to, uh, you know, other people about that, you know, I hope to be that person someday, but I was lying to everybody, you know. The same thing happened to me, that and that, that is such a miracle. Like, yeah. I used to lie to people about things I was doing or going to do, and now I'm sober and I'm actually doing those things. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, I mean, that is the Incredible. most, yeah, that is the most mind-blowing thing I've probably experienced, and I love that you, mes- you mentioned that because, like, typical alcoholics, we forget, right? Uh, right about that. But what an incredible thing that is. Like you you look at you now. You 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 wrote a book. How did that yeah. how did that come about? What, at what point because and I I love I love AA, I love sobriety and I love what esteemable acts can do for somebody because here you are this person who doesn't want to tell anybody that they're sober and now you're you're writing a book 10 years <laughs> later. So how did yeah. what point did you decide you wanted to write a book? Well, a lot of people had told me that my story was pretty interesting and I had um, been a 10th grade English teacher and I had a blog for a while back in the day. So people would tell me that a lot. Oh, you should write a book. You should write a book, blah, blah, blah. And then having, you know, four extra babies kind of put me in a, you know, category of like, oh, that's another interesting thing. Yeah, but I sure just never is. had the time, you know, like it's just this constant, you know, which fire is burning the brightest and, you know, so putting those out one by one. And then um, when the pandemic hit, I mean, as I mentioned at the beginning, it was like I suddenly had time and I got connected with a group of writers, most of whom were in recovery. And we would write every day on Zoom for one hour. We would just all sit there in silence and get our laptops out. And so I had that sense of accountability. Yeah. And, and yeah, and it just went from there. So it just kind of was all ready to kind of come out and it was time. It was a good time. And I felt like it would be a good memory from a really, you know, difficult year. And also just the fact that I was turning 10 years in April, the timing was all, it felt solid. It felt good. Well, tough question. What do you, I mean, you have four, you had four kids when you were drinking and they were, I guess, in the car when you were you got that DUI and then you have mm-hmm. four children who who do not know drunk mom you know drunk Amy mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. what's the difference between those two children I guess what do you tell your your old you know the, the, the four children you had before you stopped drinking and the ones you do you did after yeah it, it's such a weird dichotomy it's like bizarre but basically my first four you know, they got to see me recover out loud, which of course I did not want them to have to see at the time. You know, I just wanted to hit pause and then I just wanted to go recover and get all fixed up and then come back and resume my life. And that would have done them a real disservice. You know, they got to see the struggle and they got to see me, you know, basically run off into a closet and and start calling my sponsor and making some phone calls when I was you know, dealing with some feelings and they got to see all of that stuff. 
stuff. You know, they got to see me go to meetings and make that a priority. And, um, you know, they of course got their amends. I sat down with each of them individually and did an amends. And, and so we talk about alcohol in our house super openly. And so then as a result, my younger four, they know that I don't drink. They know that I used to drink too much. And, you know, as time goes on and they're age appropriate, for sure I'll share with them the entire story. And it's written now, so they, they can read it. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, I just, it, it is very strange because, you know, they're, they're reaping some of the, the benefits, I guess, of, um, you know, the results of 12-step work. And, you know, and everything in my life today should be stamped, like property of, you know, 12-step. Yeah, pro- me too. Property, whatever you're going to say, 12-step yeah. AA, yeah, 100%. Well, how did you yeah. reintegrate into, you know, the, the PTA society? How did you reintegrate? Because <laughs> a lot of those moms, look, it's like anything, yeah. right? Whether you're, I mean, you could be on a pro basketball team. There's a rumor mill there. Uh, with moms, there's for a sure. rumor mill. People love to, you know, gossip, uh, for, for, unfortunately. You know, and I can fall into that category too. How do you... How do you come clean out of that? You know, I had to get all new playgrounds and playmates. I could not stay in that neighborhood where I was drinking every afternoon with my neighbors. I just couldn't do it. So we actually moved, and not far, but just down the freeway a little bit to a different city and then put my kids in school out there or here. And, um, you know, and I started fresh. And for me, that's what it took. That sounds incredible. And, I mean, you know, you had the resources to do that. Obviously, not everybody yeah. can. But that was, I mean, right. for me, as a single dude, it was easy. But just to go somewhere different, restart your life clean, go to meetings, plug in. I, that is so huge. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I had to pour all into it because, um, you know, I was just afraid and terrified. I wouldn't be able to make it unless I made some really significant changes. So tell us, uh, as we wrap up here, talk to us yeah. a little bit about, about the book. Who is it for? And what are you trying to accomplish with it? Well, I, I attempted to make it um, evergreen, even though it does tie together, you know, the parallels between pregnancy and birth and getting sober. But chiefly, you know, the themes are like pain is the touchstone to growth and that's, you know, what I experienced both in pregnancy and, you know, delivery. It's like the result is fabulous, but the process is difficult. And so the same thing, obviously, with my sobriety, you know, there were just some really difficult moments getting to, you know, have the freedom I have today came at a price. You know, it's not like I snapped my fingers and got here. So, um, just tried to make it real evergreen in that sense with the theme. So it's really for anybody who feels like they might be drinking too much, but mostly it's for that person who really doesn't want to tell anybody that they suspect that they might have a drinking problem because I know what that's like to hide it and to fear that someone's going to, you know, catch you and, uh, you know, then you're going to have to get sober and, and what does that mean? And what does that look like? And all the fears associated with that. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, it's obviously for any uh, mom, but chiefly, I just tried, I tried to make it evergreen enough so that it would be relatable to lots of folks. Where can people find you on social media if they want to track oh, you? Oh, Yeah, they're, um, I'm on Instagram at Amy Liz Harrison. And my website is amylizharrison.com. And I'm pretty much Amy Liz Harrison on all the platforms. Okay. Um, I, I can't thank you enough. The book is uh, Eternally Expecting. A mom of eight gets sober and gives birth to a new life, her own. Uh, you've given birth to some more hope, and we're putting it out there, and that's kind of what the whole deal is about. So uh, I cannot thank Ooh. you enough for your time. It's really important. And, and I kind of needed to talk to another alcoholic this morning. So it's great. It worked out. It worked out well for both of us. 
It sure did. And Pete, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, Amy, you got it. And uh, this will be uh, this will come up next Thursday. So I, I will I will send you a link so you can you know send it out or, or whatever you want to do with it. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks, Amy. I appreciate you. You bet. Bye-bye. Have a great day. You too. Thanks. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts. You can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. 